Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, happy Mother's Day, everyone. Good morning. I'm Robert Kelly, one of the pastors here at uh, the church. So glad you've joined us for a continuation of our teaching series and for Mother's Day. And so in a, a moment to help us with where we're actually heading for the rest of the morning, I want you to take just a few minutes, I want you, a few moments, I want you to turn around, I want you to find a little group of four or five people, and I want you to tell each other what is awesome about moms. I want you to celebrate moms for just a couple of minutes here. And if you're a mom, you're not talking about yourself. You have you have a mom too. So celebrate moms for just a couple of moments here. All right, what do we get? Did anybody, anybody say the most awesome thing about mom is she made me? Was that, was that where you first went? Was that your go-to, your go-to response? So you, you start talking about, we celebrate, we take just a couple of moments. It's actually what today is, is about as a holiday is you're, we're just taking some time to celebrate. And to celebrate, it means we carve out part of our schedule. We usually carve out some finances and we commit ourselves to just celebrating something. In this case, it's moms. What an absolute gift to be able to do. Now, how many of you find celebrating an easy thing to do? Is it something that just sort of happens naturally for you? It just sort of bubbles out? Or are there some of you here that say, actually, no, it takes a little bit more work for me? Because that's what we're going to be talking about here this morning. Now, by way of kind of catching up, our series, Fixer Upper, has been about taking the things that are broken down, the things that need fixing up, and renovating them such to the point that they represent what God's plan and will for our lives is all about. And we've been talking about this as the stuff that is being renovated in our own souls 
and the stuff that gets renovated in the world around us. All the things that need fixing up and how it is we can go about doing that. And to learn about this, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah. It's a fascinating book of the Old Testament because it starts with the story of this Jewish guy who finds himself in a pagan empire, Persia, living in one of the royal cities, Susa, and he's works, he works for the king. Very high, established, powerful position, but he works for the king. And something happens in Nehemiah's life. He could have stayed put where he was. He could have done nothing other than what he was doing every day, which was living in the most beautiful part of the world with the most resources, having one of the best rewarded jobs of his day, and he could have stayed nice, happy, comfortable Nehemiah. But God had put some sort of holy discontent in his soul, such that he decided that something was wrong in himself, in his people, and with their future. And so he repented, and he repented for his people, and he allowed that renovation work in his soul to overflow its bounds and compel him to go to a distant land, face incredible risks at extremely high cost to himself, and to do this incredible work of renovation in the Holy Land, to rebuild Jerusalem. The thing that we see happen in the book is that during renovation, we can become really overwhelmed. During renovation, we can become overwhelmed. We see this in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. And this sense of being overwhelmed is directly tied to the people's experience of God's word. In fact, the word I want to kind of use to describe this sense is melancholy. Melancholy. It just sort of captures for me the essence of what I want to talk about here this morning. So during renovation, we can become overwhelmed and we can experience this sense of melancholy. And I think this happens both to the work that's going on in us and to the work we see that has to happen in the world. So look at verse 9, Nehemiah 8, verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest the te and teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And some of you have experienced this. You started understanding a little bit more about Christianity and about yourselves. You started studying God's word, listening to it taught. Started reading books about it. And you started to see God's high ideals for what it means to be a follower of Christ. And then you inevitably look to your own life and you say, well, I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not doing so good. Here's the life of Christ, and, and here's my life. It's not what I want to do. It's not who I want to be. It gets even worse as you start to read through the scriptures and see what it is that God desires for the world. 
the kind of hope that he wants to bring, the kind of heartache that he wants to heal. And you look around and you see injustice and you see lives that are shattered and you see this kind of suffering and emotional and spiritual angst. You see institutionalized injustice that seems impossible to break after so many generations. And what do you do? Your hearts can get heavy. We read the God's word. We understand what God wants in the world and from us. And it, could, it can lead us to mourn. Because our failures, they weigh heavy on our souls. The brokenness in the world around us, the things that need to be fixed up, it can make our hearts heavy. And when you read the word of God, it just seems like sometimes it, it just keeps highlighting these things. It keeps showing us yet another area where I'm just, I'm not quite right. We start to mourn. The word of God can do this to us. There's actually a story. There was a, a, a young priest. He was a new priest, and he ended up going to a monastery, and he was given the job of copying the ancient uh, manuscripts and canons of the law. But he found out, and he was doing it with a whole lot of other priests that were copying, because I guess that's what they do in stories like this. And they're all copying the manuscripts, and what, and what ends up happening is he realizes they're copying copies. That's how they're doing it. And the young priest, he's kind of innovative, and he says, you know, I don't know if that's such a good idea. Like, have you guys thought about the fact that if there has been a mistake in one of the other copies, we could be copying mistakes for all of these centuries? And they're like, well, that's what we do. We copy copies. Like, this is how we do things here. And so they said, if you're worried about it, you should go see the head priest, like the cardinal or the bishop, whoever it was in the month. And they said, so he does. He goes to the head priest. And he's like, hey, you know, I'm just thinking. I feel like, you know, I don't know, copies of copies. And he's like, listen, we've been doing that for hundreds of years. He's like, if you're concerned, you know what? It's a good point. Let me go down to the catacombs. Let me find the oldest of the manuscripts and we'll compare them. Not a big deal. So he does. He goes down. He's gone for hours and hours and hours. And finally, people are starting to get a little bit nervous, especially this young, this young priest. He's like, you know, it's dark down there. He could have fallen. He's getting old. Who knows what happened? He's like, I should go look for him. So he does. He heads down into the catacombs. He's going to go find the big vault where they keep all of the copies of the oldest manuscripts in the canon of the law. And he hears this weeping, wailing, crying. He realizes it's the, it's the head priest. It's the older guy. And all of a sudden, he kind of approaches, and he peeks in the room, and he sees him. He's banging his head against the wall. He's bloodied. He's bruised. And he keeps saying, we missed the R. We missed the R. And he's like, he doesn't know. And he comes in the room, and he's like, what's wrong? What happened? And he says, the word was celebrate, not celibate. <laughs> It's a true story. See, the word of God, you read it, sometimes it can bring us to this place of mourning. And God is saying, no, I don't want you to be melancholy. I want you to be celebratory. I want you to be celebratory. He wanted the people to switch from mourning to celebrating. Look at verse 10. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat 
and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. See, what, why? Because work on the city had reached a turning point. There was now some safety and some security, and the rebuilding of the nation was well underway because of the hard work and the sacrifices of the people. And this is worth celebrating. And the work on the people themselves, on their own hearts, on their behaviors, on their obedience to God's word, this was well underway because of the power and the beauty of God's word that they had been listening to. This is worth celebrating. I'm not good at this. This is one of these areas where I'm like, you know, I'm reading through this stuff and I'm here, I'm like, I just, I'm not good at it. It's not my, which is funny because I'm, I'm, I'm generally, I'm, I'm an optimistic sort of a guy. I'm much more positive than I am more negative. And, but, but celebrating does not come natural to me. So for me, as soon as something is done, it's done. Like I want to look to the next thing, right? Because to me, there's something going on in my heart that's not quite right about like achievement and, and my identity and stuff like that. And so for me, it's like, it doesn't matter what has already happened. It only matters what is going to happen next? And so I need to deal with these issues, but it causes me to not actually celebrate. Because for me, you know, like we, we did this awesome job, World Vision, we raised all this money. It, if, if the banners weren't up and if people weren't talking about it, it would be easy for me to say, well, that was yesterday. Like, uh, but this is where there's going to be kids that no longer have to be victimized when they go to get water. There's going to be kids. Like, this is worth celebrating. There's going to be kids that aren't going to get, you know, waterborne illnesses anymore because we help them put clean water in their homes. For This is worth celebrating. But it's so easy for me to sort of skip right past it. Chip and Joanna in the movie, of course, in what might very well be the corniest part of each episode. You guys know what this, what I'm talking about? This is the part at the very end. How many of you love that part where they kind of like have the fake house in the picture of the house and then they pull it back, right? Now, how many of you think that, and now that I've called it the corniest part, how many of you think that's the best part of, of or a few of you are willing to admit it. You're like, I don't care if you think it's corny. It's awesome. Because of course, that's what we're there for. We're watching the show. They do the big reveal. There's tears and people are crying. Oh my it's so beautiful. It's so sweet, right? They're loved. And then they walk through the house painfully slow. And this was this. And this was this. I'm like, just saw you do all that. Like, let's get to the next house. I want to see the wreck and I want to see it fixed. But of course, what are they doing? They're celebrating. They're taking a few moments and they're just saying, look at all of the hard work. It paid off. And there ought to be joy. There ought to be a pleasure in this. There ought to be some relishing of these great moments trying to help us with this as a staff because of my own weaknesses in it. As part of our weekly staff meeting now, we do a people stories section right at the beginning of our meeting. We just say, any people stories? And it's a discipline of us just stopping and thinking of individuals, of you, of people in the congregation, of things that we've heard going on and struggles that have been overcome and challenges that have been beaten and lives that are being transformed and people that are growing in faith and others who are just sort of starting to ask questions about. And we just, we share those stories for just a little bit to stop and to celebrate the work that God is doing here in our spiritual family. And it's an, un, it's an incredibly sweet and encouraging time. See, these things are worth celebrating, and God wants us to be celebratory. And I think there's an even deeper reality as to why God calls them and us to celebration. He says, throughout the scriptures, 
we, we kind of start to hear this, that celebrating is at the center of God's heart. It's who he is. It's what he does. God is a happy God. He's a happy God. I think so often we think of God as, as sort of like, you know, staid. He's a little bit dour. He's, you know, he just kind of like, you know, he's there and he's kind of like scowling if he's not like smirking. Like, you know, he's got this like kind of, we have, he's, he's not, you know, he's not excited about things. He's a little bit gloomy because he's got the weight of like the universe and all of us on his shoulders all the time. And so obviously he's going to be gloomy. You know, this is kind of the picture we get, but the exact opposite is true. He loves being God. He delights in it. He enjoys it. He takes great pleasure in all that he does. He's enthusiastic about loving us and serving us. He delights in it, in working for our welfare. He loves what he does. John Piper writes amazingly about this in a book called The Pleasures of God. He said, it is good news that God is gloriously happy. No one would want to spend eternity with an unhappy God. <laughs> if God is unhappy, then the goal of the gospel is not a happy goal. And that means it would be no, it would be no gospel at all. But, in fact, Jesus invites us to spend eternity with a happy God when he says, enter into the joy of your master. Therefore, the gospel is the gospel of the glory of the happy God. The gospel of the glory of the happy God, is that your conception? Is that your perception of God this morning? You see that this is the, the gospel of the gloriously happy God. And God wants his people to celebrate and to have joy. Look at verse 11. The Levites calmed the people. Be still. This is a holy day. Don't grieve. Then the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and celebrate with great joy. A holy day. He literally calls a holy day. He says, listen, you, got, you can't mourn anymore. This is a holy day. Holy days ought to be fun days. How many of you have that connection in your head yet? That a, whole, a holy day for me is a somber day. Like, you know, this is when we're supposed to, like, be quiet and, like, hold my head down and, and be quiet, like, just not be around. I should be alone on a holy, this is a holy day. And he's like, no, this is a holy day. Stop the morning. Calm down, relax, celebrate. It's a holy day. He even, I love this fact that you saw they, they, they take portions of food and they give it to people who don't. They prepared portions. That means that people who couldn't afford great food and drink, the other people who had a bounty of it had to give it to them. Why? Because on a day like this, everybody should have great food and great drink. Everybody should be able to celebrate God's bounty. Everyone. There should be no distinction between people economically because everyone must party. Then he calls them to celebrate Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 13, he says, On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests, the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. 
And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. Now, this is neat because then he goes on to explain what they're supposed to do. And the gist of it is they're supposed to go out into the woods. They're supposed to gather up wood and sticks and all the stuff that they need. And they're supposed to build forts all over their city. And all of the people are supposed to go out into these forts and celebrate for days on end. That's what they're supposed to do. It's one big giant block party for days on end. That's what he's saying to do. He even goes on. Look at verse 17. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Very great. Sukkot is the last of the three pilgrimage festivals when all of the Jewish people are supposed to gather together for days of celebrating. It was a historical celebration. It was to represent the days they traveled in the wilderness that God continued to provide for their needs miraculously. But it also, because of the time of year, became known as the Harvest Festival. It was actually called the Festival of the Ingathering. So this is a days-long harvest block party. That's what's going on here. And they fully and thoroughly enjoyed it, unlike they had done for generations. They celebrated the work that God was doing in them and in the world around them, days of eating and dancing, and singing, and drinking, and shouting, and partying, and celebrating. And you know, Jesus was no different. Jesus was no different. He is constantly recorded as going to meals and parties. He had a great sense of humor. Many of the parables are downright comical. So much so that the critics called him a glutton and a drunkard. You don't get that reputation by being sour and dour. You get that reputation by being with people and enjoying life to its fullest. Great joy in his heart, overflowing to people around him, so much so that the critics say, he's pushing it a little. He's pushing it just a little bit. Richard Foster, he recognizes in in a book, Celebration of Discipline, he points out that in Luke chapter 2, the very beginning, he says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. That's how they announced the birth of Christ. The very beginning of the earthly life of Christ, great joy for everyone. That's the promise of the birth of Jesus. Then go all the way through his life, all the way to the very end, and you get to John 15. And Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The beginning of his life, the very end. This happened right before he went to the cross. His whole life would have been marked by this. And he said, this is the, this is the reason that I have come, for your joy This is why the Apostle Paul can tell us in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice. The final consummation of all of creation, when the church 
is joined with Jesus at the end of time. You know what the language Jesus uses to describe that? What is it? It's a wedding. It's a party. It's the wedding banquet of the lamb. That's how he, what happens at a wedding? What do you guys do? Go, what, do you, what happens when you go to weddings? You eat great food. You go, you drink, you dance, you hang out with friends. We actually had a wedding just yesterday. Uh, Derek and Cheryl, they got married. Many of you know Derek and Cheryl. Uh, yeah, right, very cool. And a lot, few, quite a few of us were, were there who know them. And uh, we went to the wedding. It was a great celebratory moment. The service was, was really neat. Then we went to the rehearsal, I mean the uh, reception. It was a great party. You know what people do there, right? They're hanging out. They're having fun like this. this is a, people were dancing. Who, who is, that? is that? Is that Billy? Billy, is that you dancing with, with, oh, with Danny. Oh, that is you. You got it. You got it. Oh, you guys are, those are our Marines dancing together at, uh, at the party. Uh, so, yeah, we had uh, a great time. And Jesus says, you know those great times you have? They're an echo. They're a taste. They're a hint of what I have for you. That's what they are. A hint. Because it's at the very heart of Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Do you know how to party? To party in such a way that you can get the absolute greatest amount of God-given joy out of life. Do you know how to have fun? Do you know how to get people together? Do you know how to celebrate in these ways? <laughs> Danny does. And he was helping Billy learn. <laughs> See, I think much of society, we're lacking in this spontaneous and sustained kind of happiness. We often seem like we're much more of a gray, dreary bunch which is so surprising. I mean, think about this. We're living in one of the most affluent, prosperous countries in the whole of the world. You would imagine that we would wake up every single day and be like, yes, it's another day. I don't have to fight for my life and I have food on my table and people around me who care about me and freedom to do what I want to do. Every day we should be waking up like, this is so fantastic, but we're not. Like, oh, another day, I got to go drag my butt out of bed and go, right? This is what we do. It reminds me of that com the comic, I forget who he is now, but the comic we used to see, we watched who, uh, he talks about like flying in an airplane. He's like, you know, we're all like, oh man, I got to fly in an airplane. But every moment you're in an airplane, you should be like, I'm in a chair in the air. Like, wow, like this is awesome. I'm in the air, right? Like this is how we are. Like we should ought to be having this sort of experience of joy all the time around us, but we we forget how to do this. We're not a celebratory people. Richard Foster, he said, the carefree spirit of joyous festivity is absent in contemporary society. Apathy, even melancholy, dominates the times. Harvey Cox says that modern man has been pressed so hard toward useful work and rational calculation, he has all but forgotten the joy of ecstatic celebration. This ought not to be so, especially for the followers of Christ. We were at a conference. Chris and I went to a conference just recently, and uh, it was a rough conference. I mean, very tough schedule, a lot going on. We were like great content, but it was a lot of stuff. We're trying to apply it 
to the church and figure out how to be better leaders and all of this kind of stuff. And it was great, but we, it was in the South. And so, you know, the people in the South, they're just, they're different, right? And so we show up, they're just, you know, they're, they're, uh, what was, I said it slower in the first service. That wasn't the word I was looking for. It was something else. They're, uh, they're, pay, they're measured, they're time. I don't know what it is. Anyway, it was slow. And so we, we met, we met, we got there to the conference and this, this girl's helped me out. She got this great Southern drawl and she's like, wow, you're from New York? Bacon Church? Bacon Church? You're from Bacon. Oh, Beacon Church. I thought it said Bacon Church. And I'm like, no, no, it's Beacon. But Bacon would have been good. And she's like, yeah. She says, you know, Bacon is the only food that when cooked applauds itself. I'm like, yes, we should be Bacon Church. Like, we should be happy and celebratory. We should be doing this. And then, so a couple days later, you know, Chris and I just spent, like, emotionally and spiritually, we're tired. They're like... You know, these like 14, 15 hour days of this learning. We had dinner and we had some friends there with us from the area. So you guys know the bridge, Dan Q is the pastor over there. It's a great church, a real, you know, kind of a partner to us in many ways. Anyway, they were there with their team. And so we ended up going out to, we decided, let's have a nice dinner and let's go out to a nice place, just spend some time together and kind of regroup and revisit. So we went to this place and this is what they served us as an appetizer. Bacon! really thick bacon and that was the first of many of those we ordered and they just kept them coming this fat slabs of bacon look at the guy behind it he's like bacon (laughs) right and so we sat here at this meal and we just had this incredible food with great drinks and a fantastic time of conversation and afterwards we were full like stuffed to the gills we had eaten had so much we were full and we left and Chris and I both said this was good. But it wasn't just good for the food. It was good for the soul. It was good. We were able to celebrate. We were able to be refreshed. We were able to be recharged. And celebrating does this. Celebrating makes us strong. Verse 10, right? Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This, is the, this day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, celebrating brings you strength. It brings you spiritual fortitude. It applies in all of life. Celebration can help us with all of the Christian disciplines. If you're not careful, your Bible study and your prayer and you're going into church, they become just these sort of religious, these mechanized moments of religious duty that you have to do, but you bring in the celebration and you bring in the joy and all of a sudden you start to say, wait, no, these, were, these are disciplines that are meant to enhance my celebration. They're meant to bring me joy. Creates these powerful bonds between people. We saw it that day when we were having that meal, and we've seen it many other times. It helps us connect with people. We get to share the joy of our lives. I think it was Oscar Wilde. He said, uh, the, the worst sin is to bore. So don't. Don't do that. Don't be a bore. Followers of Christ, we ought not to be these kinds of sour and dour people, but ought to be able to take the joy of Christ, the joy that is in the heart of God, and experience it more fully and completely and bring it to the world. Because celebration is contagious. It reproduces itself. 
And that's an incredible gift. You know, you come out to church. You know, why do you think we have half of our time together on Sunday mornings as singing and prayers and, and, and readings together? Why do you think we do that? Because it's celebration. That's why we sing songs together. You know, sometimes people come in, they're like, oh, when's the music going to end so we can get to the message? Because I have to learn more stuff that I'm not going to apply. You know, it's like, no, we're supposed to actually do, we're here, we can worship together. You know, it's like, sometimes it's like you see them, you're like, I'm going to drink my coffee, I'm hoping they don't look at me. But it's like, we're here to celebrate. That's why we do it. For, if you're not a follower of Christ, I, don't, I get it, you're not here to celebrate. You're not supposed to be. You don't even understand it yet. That's fine. But if you're a follower of Christ, what's going on? I told Chris, I said, yo, Chris, from now on, don't stop until they, they're smiling and singing. That's it. <laughs> We stay. We're going to sing some songs later. That's it. We stay until people smile and they get it because that's what we're here to do. We're here to celebrate. And that's a great discipline for us. And when you feel yourself going into that melancholy place, set your mind on the things above. Set your mind on the things that are true, that are noble, that are right, that are pure, that are lovely, that are excellent, that are praiseworthy. Think on these things. No, I'm not, I'm not naive, okay? Listen, I know that life can be hard, that it is rarely fair. There's plenty of heartache. But we can live above the melancholy. Through the power of Christ, Christian, let your hearts be filled with joy. Celebrate and dance and sing and shout and eat great food and drink great drinks. Because celebrating brings the soul in alignment with Jesus. And it produces the resources that we need for the work of renovation taking place all around us. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They are going to lead us in a couple more celebratory songs about the, the need, the power of Christ. And as they do, I'm just going to ask you to just bow your heads with me and pray. Lord, I'm asking that you would help us to get, capture your heart in this. So often, Lord, we just forget that you are a happy God, that you delight in being you and that you delight in us, and that because of Jesus. We don't have to be weighed down and burdened the way that we are. And Lord, that even in those hard times, even in the brokenness, even in the despair, we get to come to you in a different way. We don't grieve like the world grieves. We don't mourn like the world mourns. Because you are God of great joy. Christ promised it to us. He delivered on it. I'm asking, Father, that you would stir each of our hearts up toward this end. Make us the men and the women who can experience true joy, who could live in the consistent power of it. Give us the wisdom to celebrate, to make the time for it. Take the initiative, take the time, the resources needed, Lord, that we might celebrate well. May we be known as people of great joy. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.